just a quick word from our sponsor, Pathway. Have you ever felt overwhelmed trying to keep up with the latest in medicine? There are piles of journals and guidelines you just haven't gotten to. I've definitely been there before, and that's where Pathway can be a game changer. Pathway is a new clinical decision support tool that wants to empower clinicians to make evidence-based decisions quickly and efficiently. So like for this episode, I was looking up atrial fibrillation and magnesium, and I was pretty impressed to see there were already the latest guidelines on AFib, and the guidelines had just come out. Um, it's crazy that the app is updated daily. Best of all, Pathway is absolutely free, really leveling the playing field regardless of your budget. And for those who want more, there is a premium version for unlimited CME credits for every search or article. There are also other features like Pathway AI, which is cool. So why wait? Download the Pathway app for free, either through coreampodcast.com backslash pathway, or click the link in our show notes. Elevate your practice. I know it's elevated mine. I just keep a tab open of Pathway and look up things that come up since it's so user-friendly and at no cost. Join the community of healthcare professionals who are already benefiting from Pathway. Welcome to the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi. And I'm Dr. Ben Osher, an internal medicine resident at BIDMC. On today's Five Pearls episode, we'll be covering all things mag, FOSS, and electrolytes in general. Let's start with the pearls that we'll be covering in this episode. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, magnesium. Can magnesium supplementation actually improve things like asthma and restless leg syndrome? Pearl 2. Framework for hypomagnesemia. When you see a low mag, what are you thinking about? And can PPIs affect magnesium absorption? Pearl 3. Magnesium repletion. Does the length of time that magnesium is infused over matter? Pearl 4. Phosphorus. What's your framework when you see a low phosphate in the EMR? Pearl 5. Phosphate repletion. How much sodium and potassium are typically found in oral phosphorus supplementation? So when I first started digging into the evidence behind magnesium repletion, I actually got really excited initially. Yeah? How come, Ben? Well, in addition to the benefits of mag that we all know and appreciate, like preventing torsades, treating eclampsia, good things. I think we can all agree. (laughs) There's been a lot of buzz recently about magnesium as a potential panacea for all sorts of random medical conditions like asthma exacerbation, poor sleep, cataracts, depression, migraine, hot flashes, atopic dermatitis, all sorts of things. And so I was really excited to sit down with our favorite nephrologist, Dr. Melanie Honig, to hear about magnesium as this potential cure for pretty much anything that ails you. Oh my gosh, Ben, so much to unpack here. First of all, Please don't be upset. As much as I love potassium, I do not love magnesium. It's just not my favorite cation. I'm not really sure about magnesium as this sort of panacea for all things. She particularly brought up all the patients that she sees who have Gittleman syndrome. As a refresher in Gittleman, you have a mutation in sodium and magnesium transport. So it's like you're chronically on a thiazide and have low magnesium. One way to to look at that 
in my mind is to say, what happens when patients have low magnesium chronically? Do they have asthma or migraines or whatnot that would be better when we treated those? And I do follow some patients who have Gittleman's syndrome and those patients generally don't have migraines and asthma and whatnot. So I'm reassured by that or I'm convinced by that. Okay, that's, that's a valid point. So Dr. Honig is right. While there is some association, it seems, between mag level and some of these illnesses and symptoms, I haven't seen super persuasive evidence that repleting their mag will fix their diabetes or their cataracts or what have you. Yeah. The other reason I was really excited about mag initially is, is that I think about mag as a pretty benign thing to give someone. Basically, it's this thing that hypothetically can treat all of these different kind of unrelated seeming problems. And then on top of that, it's something that it doesn't really cause more problems when you give it to people. After all, OB-GYNs give their patients super physiologic doses of magnesium, and those patients generally tolerate those doses pretty well. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yes. But Dr. Honig did bring up that the typical patient on the OB-GYN service who's getting preeclampsia doses of magnesium looks pretty different than the typical patient on the medicine service. Luckily, most of the time in obstetrics, the patient's kidney function is normal. And then with time, they'll excrete that magnesium and they'll do well. Patients who don't have normal kidney function, though, can get into trouble with neuromuscular symptoms. Uh Oh, yeah. Especially when someone has severe renal dysfunction who can't excrete their magnesium. When that mag gets over four, you start seeing decreased reflexes and even too much mag can lead to weakness, confusion. Yeah, so too much of pretty much anything can cause problems, especially when we consider magnesium excretion and homeostasis. Very dependent on the kidneys and the gut. Yes, yes, yes. But Ben, I know you were really excited about magnesium and being quote-unquote bullish about repleting it, so there must be some upside to repleting magnesium. Yeah, so we also sat down with Dr. Tony Brew, hospitalist, educator extraordinaire, about what the evidence does and does not say about magnesium and magnesium repletion. I think the data is best for magnesium. And by data, I mean the data for repleting is best for magnesium amongst the three electrolytes that we're talking about. And by the three electrolytes, he means potassium, mag, and phos. There were randomized control trials of giving magnesium to patients with acute MI that should benefit. This wasn't borne out in like the most recent rigorous trials, but there's at least something that said if we give magnesium to a patient with acute MI, outcomes are better. They weren't all hypomagnesemic, but it's like just the idea of giving magnesium. Dr. Brew is referring to an RCT from the 90s that showed that IV mag in patients with acute MI who couldn't get thrombolytics had decreased mortality compared to placebo. Yeah, Ben, but how do studies that were done in the 90s, right, apply to today's age when there's so many more medical therapies? Yeah, so he he said it wasn't borne out in more recent studies, which have kind of wild names, MAGIC, ISIS-4. <laughs> These didn't show statistically significant mortality benefit from MAG infusion in post-heart attack patients. But to give some context, some people have pointed out that isis force trial population wasn't as sick, and so those people may not have been in as much of a position to benefit from IV mag supplementation. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a mixed bag of evidence in post-MI patients. Are there any other conditions that mag has been a little bit better studied and more helpful in? Atrial fibrillation. I love giving it for patients with atrial fibrillation, though, again, the data is plus or minus on that. So one of my favorite little pearls to drop on rounds is something that I got from this meta-analysis from 2007 that looked at RCTs using MAG for acute control of rapid AFib. 
They found increased success of either rate or rhythm control, as well as faster time to response to therapy. So MAG is potentially something to reach for in patients with rapid asymptomatic AFib. Oh, I love me a harmless intervention. And then lastly, another good reason for upping someone's MAG is that it can actually help out other electrolytes in terms of repletion. For instance, it can help out our other friend, potassium. Magnesium also sabotages my favorite cation, potassium. (laughs) Since it's long been known that uh, hypomagnesemia can lead to hypokalemia, and the mechanism has been worked out. It's pretty cool. It turns out that if the intracellular magnesium is low, then magnesium, which normally blocks the um, potassium egress from cells in the distal nephron, if those magnesium ions are not there, then potassium could just uh, sort of leave those cells more quickly. There is data that if you have a patient who is hypokalemic, if you give them magnesium, the hypokalemia will get better. So if I have someone who's got a potassium of 3.2 and a magnesium of 1.4, my advice is just give them magnesium. The magnesium will get better. And you know what? The potassium will probably get better too. And that is two birds with one stone. With that said, if if someone's total body potassium is down, you're probably not going to be able to completely solve this just by repleting magnesium. But sure, repleting mag will make the job of repleting potassium much easier as you're not going to have to actively fight against ongoing potassium wasting as much. Ah, that is a win. All right. And then another bonus one of our reviewers pointed out is that repleting magnesium can actually help in hypocalcemia. It turns out that chronically low mag is associated with impaired PTH secretion, which in turn leads to low calcium. See, Mac does do a bunch of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does. But Ben, maybe this might be a good point to summarize what is actually really great about it and what are just some associations. Okay. So the best data for aggressive mag repletion is in the acute post-MI period, rapid AFib, and then in helping with repleting patients who are hypokalemic. I was really excited about this list of disparate conditions that mag repletion could potentially be helpful in, including things like asthma, restless leg syndrome, sleep apnea. It's a little disappointing, maybe, that mag hasn't yet been shown to be the silver bullet that can single-handedly fix cataracts and insomnia. (laughs) And it's also worth keeping in mind, just because OB patients can tolerate these whopping doses of magnesium, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be maybe a little bit more careful when we're giving liberal doses of mag to 80-year-olds with CKD on medicine floors. Okay, so now, similar to our hypokalemia episode, both Dr. Honig and Dr. Bruce stress the importance of not just mindlessly throwing an elemental supplement to add a number, and instead stepping back and thinking about why that magnesium is low. So that approach to hypomagnesemia is actually really not that different from potassium or phosphate for that matter, because you want to ask yourself, well, where did it go? Why is it low? And there can be renal losses of magnesium or GI losses of magnesium. So my framework when I see electrolytes is, and so space repetition again from the hypokalemia episode is to think about these four buckets. Is the patient not eating enough? Is the patient urinating out? Is the patient pooping it out? Or is it being shifted into cells? For our hypomag framework, we can pretty much get rid of shifts into cells since there's just not that much of that outside of these like very specific medical conditions like hungry bone syndrome. The most bang for our buck is going to be from those middle two. So any magnesium wasting that is happening, probably due to either renal or GI losses. Normally when we eat, about a third of the magnesium is reabsorbed by the GI tract and then the rest is lost in the stool. 
And then um, that same magnesium that's absorbed then because we're typically imbalanced will be excreted by the kidneys. Okay, so a third of magnesium is absorbed in the GI tract. And then it makes sense that things like diarrhea, malabsorption condition, history of small bowel surgery will decrease how much mag is getting absorbed in that GI tract. So actually, one of the most common causes for loss through stool can actually be found on a lot of people's medication lists. And those are proton pump inhibitors. And it turns out it's not the kidney's fault. It's the enterocytes because using proton pump inhibitors changes the pH and affects the way we absorb dietary magnesium. So not my fault. Um, So if you could stop a proton pump inhibitor, that will help. Otherwise, giving oral magnesium is probably not going to get you where you want to go. So that is worth noting. Yep. So PPIs affect the pH of the lumen of the bowel, and that affects magnesium absorption. So it's certainly worth trying to stop the PPI, transition them, say, to an H2 blocker, and then start magnesium replacement. H2 blockers haven't been shown to have any effect on magnesium levels. Yes, that is a win. So how soon after stopping a PPI should we expect to see that magnesium go up? I think you can see it pretty soon, like within days. There's a, f- a fascinating New, in- New England Journal of Medicine um, case report that shows like these curves just up and down, like PPI stopped, magnesium goes up, PPI <clears throat> reinstituted it, it plummets again. So crazy. And we will link those eye-opening changes of mag levels with PPI in the show notes. It's not uncommon that I'm telling teams to check a urinary magnesium on a patient who's hypomagnesemic on a PPI. Because if their urine magnesium um, is low, that suggests that the kidneys are not the source of the, of the uh, magnesium wasting, but rather the stool. And just to round that out, PPIs will cause magnesium wasting through the stool, not the urine. So if you look at a urine mag, a urine magnesium, plug it into a fractional excretion of magnesium calculator, you'd expect a low fractional excretion of mag or FE mag. I wonder if the nephrologists call it FEMAG like we do with FINA. <laughs> I, I don't know if it has the same ring to it, FEMAG. Maybe we can make it a thing. But yeah, let's say a fractional excretion of magnesium, a FEMAG comes back high, say greater than three or four. It's going to point us to renal losses in magnesium. And a way to remember that is to understand how good the kidneys are in limiting loss of magnesium if the kidneys sense it. The kidneys can alter how much magnesium is excreted. And generally, in the setting of hypomagnesemia, then the fractional excretion of magnesium can go down to less than 2% of what is filtered. And another reviewer noted that a fractional excretion of mag or FEMAG, as the cool kids say. <laughs> Sorry, maybe that's a FEMAG, FEMAG less than one really points us away to renal losses and points us more to GI losses or something else. So if the kidneys are sensing low mag, they will decrease their FEMAG all the way down to like less than 2%. But if it's a renal insult, then all bets are off and mag may be wasted in the urine and then you'll detect it with a FEMAG of greater than 3 or 4%. Yep. That was a great summary. So speaking of renal losses for magnesium, what are some of the more common offenders? Thiazide diuretics also cause hypomagnesemia and poorly controlled diabetes mellitus uh, used to be one of the more common causes before proton pump inhibitors uh, because of the osmotic diuresis and the loss there. So both loop diuretics and thiazides inhibit magnesium reabsorption. This often leads to mild hypomagnesemia. 
The other offender is alcohol use, which actually also leads to renal wasting of MAG. And thankfully, the tubular dysfunction from alcohol is actually reversible after four weeks or so of abstinence. So that's another thing to kind of plug into our alcohol cessation conversations. So that pretty much puts a bow on our most common high-yield drivers of hypomagnesemia. There are a whole host of other causes like nephrotoxic medications, things like tacrolimus, cyclosporin, or other electrolyte disturbances like hypercalcemia that can also play a role. And lots of others that are more rare or cumbersome to list off. But now that we've gone over the most common reasons for a loss of magnesium in the stool or urine, let's get to that last bucket and think about the PO intake of magnesium and where that could be an issue. Magnesium is felt to be very plentiful in green leafy vegetables and grains, nuts, legumes, chocolate. There is a good one. Yep. I can imagine unless someone is very health conscious, getting veggies, legumes, and nuts, it may contribute to some mild magnesium deficiency. But it gets me wondering how much chocolate does one need for sufficient mag stores? Yeah. I thought once I heard chocolate that I was just good, but I guess too much of anything is not great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just imagining like lots of chocolate being offset by the hyperglycemia and potential osmotic diuresis and that osmotic diuresis would lead to more mag loss and it could be a vicious cycle, like everything. That's like the theme of the episode. Too much of anything is no bueno. Yeah. So my big takeaway is if I see a low mag, I think about urinary versus stool losses. When I'm thinking of stool losses, I'm going to look into a patient's history to see, are they on a PPI? Do they have any history of malabsorption, small bowel surgery, diarrhea, anything like that? And then for urinary causes, we think about low magnesium, maybe from diuretics they're on, related to alcohol or osmotic diuresis. And if you're not sure, you can always get a fractional excretion of mag or femag, as the cool kids say, <laughs> and see if it's greater than 3 or 4%. And that really points you. When it's that high, it points you to renal losses of mag. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto, And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code CORIAM50 at factormeals.com slash CORIAM50. Now that we've gone over the data that we have and don't have on magnesium, we reminded ourselves of the common offenders. Let's think of the nuances of magnesium repletion. And just to remind ourselves, how low is too low where you start worrying about symptoms and what even are those symptoms? Most patients who have hypomagnesemia are asymptomatic. If they're going to have symptoms, I suppose they could uh, complain of fatigue or weakness. The severe symptoms that we worry about are arrhythmias, tetany, and seizure. And so we obviously would like to avoid those. 
And generally, those are not going to occur unless the magnesium is well under uh, one. Ugh, and everyone's fatigued and weak these days in the hospital. So I have a pretty low threshold to replete. Yeah, so that's right, Shreya. But with that said, to just channel the hypokalemia episode for a second, it's worth noting, we see very mild hypomagnesemia somewhat frequently. And if someone's hanging out at a mag level that's 0.1, 0.2 lower than normal, then as long as they don't have terrible cardiac comorbidities or arrhythmia, you don't really need to rush to replete. That's a really good point. You know, I don't have to feel guilty if it's not a perfect 2.0. <laughs> So I guess in my experience, when it comes to mag repletion, you know, I always think IV is a little better. It's faster. Is that true? If you suspect magnesium uh, deficit as a cause of an arrhythmia and the patient's an extremist, you're going to give something quickly. But otherwise, you're going to need to give it slowly. And the reason is that if you try and give it quickly, the magnesium... Uh, in the serum is transiently higher and the kidney will detect that and then favor losses. And so you'll actually just urinate out the magnesium you're infusing. You won't get anywhere. So you need to give it slowly. Yeah. So we do see that someone's magnesium does increase faster with IV repletion, but maybe not in a way that actually keeps it at a higher level. Because what you want to do is you want to slowly you know, raise that serum value or, or not necessarily slowly raise it, but you want to raise it and give it time to get into the cells and not jump it up to a high value, excrete it all, and then you're back to sort of square one. The biggest problem of, with this, of course, is no one, no patient really wants to be hooked up to an IV magnesium pole for eight or 12 hours or else it's an apiric victory where you, the patient's just going to excrete a lot of what you give them. Um, and I don't think that most um, orders, most nurses uh, hang it for more than a couple hours. Hmm. I didn't realize that the secret to giving IV mag is to give it slowly if you want to make sure patients retain it. Yeah, now I really appreciate the nurses that tell me, oh, sorry, Shrey, I can't give X or Y medication until a few hours because the mag is running. I'm glad we're hitting on some of these blind spots. This maybe helps explain why sometimes we don't really see the mag bump that we're expecting when we try to replete someone. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. All right, so now that we went over a little bit of nuances with IV magnesium repletion, let's switch to now oral magnesium. And I think with oral mag, I think like the biggest thing that people think about is like, oh, the diarrhea it'll cause. And I'm just wondering how much of an issue is that really? I think amongst nephrologists on Twitter, that if they had a choice between PO magnesium and IV magnesium, with the formulations that we currently have, they would choose PO because it, you're, not going, you're not going to waste as much of it. For my garden variety patient, I, pr I prefer magnesium oxide oral. And, and you know why? Because most of my patients are constipated. And so, like, I'm not causing harm. But, like, what percentage of my patients are already on polyethylene glycol and senna? It's, like, over 80%. Replacing that senna with some magnesium oxide? How about we just do that? Whoa. I hadn't thought about that before. You know, it's probably on a daily occurrence that I'm giving IV magnesium and also increasing someone's bowel regimen. And now that I hear this, Clearly, mag ox may be killing two birds with one stone. Though our peer reviewer did point out a caveat that it can be a zero-sum game if the patient develops diarrhea on PO mag. If those mag supplements cause diarrhea, then that diarrhea will then worsen mag stool losses and things just kind of get worse. And then, of course, when you give it orally, that's a problem because, as you know, we use magnesium as a cathartic. So um, you're going to you know, stool that out. And so it's really hard to manage magnesium deficits. 
So what I learned is that most magnesium formulations, mag sulfate, mag hydroxide, mag citrate, these formulations are osmotic cathartics in 6% isotonic solution. So that high osmolarity solution will draw large amounts of fluid into the space and maybe the ones that make our patients poop more. Now, there are other formulations like slow mag, which is a mix of mag, chloride, and calcium that stick around longer and theoretically are better for absorption. But it depends on what your hospital formulary may have. Yep, another day in formulary-based medicine. Hooray. (laughs) Yeah, not evidence-based medicine as much as we'd like. (laughs) I don't know, maybe that's too dark to say on air. But yeah, Ben, maybe we should recap. What are you taking away from mag repletion? Anyway, so my takeaway is that if my patient's constipated and has a low mag, that it may be good to reach for oral magnesium. Yes. And then I'm going to think about that twice when I'm giving IV magnesium, Miralax, and Senna all at once. And maybe you just reach for that PO magnesium too. I think the other thing for me is when I'm giving IV magnesium, say in a patient who can't really tolerate any orals, I'm going to give instructions to maybe try to run it over two hours um, or longer if possible, if it doesn't interfere with any other meds. All right, this brings us to our last electrolyte we'll be talking about, phosphorus. Of course, Dr. Brew and Dr. Honig brought us back to thinking about the most important question, which is, why is that phosphate low? So if we go back to our framework that we constructed in the hypokalemia episode, we have inadequate intake, loss in the urine, loss in the stool, or shifting into cells. We can usually eliminate the first one. Oral phosphate intake tends really not to be much of a problem for most people. Hyposphosphatemia is very uncommon in healthy people. Uh, And when we, especially severe hypophosphatemia, very uncommon in healthy people. When I see hypophosphatemia, I like to divide it into um, GI losses and renal losses. I suppose you could develop hypophosphatemia from nutritional deficiency, but typically would also have losses because phosphate is in so many foods and so easy to supplement um, in contrast to magnesium, which is like a little bit challenging to supplement, like pumpkin seeds. But anyway, <laughs> phosphate's pretty easy to supplement. And another reason why inadequate phosphate intake is rarely the reason is because the kidneys adapt so rapidly and urinary excretion of phosphate can actually approach zero if needed. The kidney is rocking awesome at limiting phosphate loss if the kidney is normal. Like we can go to zero. We can go very, very low. Okay, so if inadequate intake is rarely a cause, then what about the rest of the GI tract? So here, again, we're thinking about most things that impact intestinal absorption, right? Diarrhea, malabsorption conditions. But if we come back to, again, the patient's med list, common things being common, a lot of patients are on meds for heartburn. And so common over-the-counter antiacids that have aluminum or magnesium can be the culprit. So those antiacids will bind phosphate and create insoluble aluminum or magnesium phosphate salts that get pooped out. Mm. So even benign over-the-counter things can be playing a role. Yeah. What about urinary causes? On the kidney side, phosphate losses are typically governed by hormones. One of the more common sort of benign causes of hypophosphatemia in the outpatient arena is uh, vitamin D deficiency and secondary hyperparathyroidism. So because we need vitamin D to absorb dietary calcium. And if you don't have that, 
then the calcium is low that turns on parathyroid hormone. And in addition to leaching calcium and phosphate from bone, it's telling the kidneys to get rid of phosphate. And then we have a deficiency problem. Yikes. I can imagine most of us listening work at clinics, hospitals, and get pretty low vitamin D in the day-to-day and just internalize it differently when you think, oh gosh, our vitamin D levels are low. We have this inability to absorb calcium, which then turns up our PTH. Then that causes calcium and phosphate to be leaked out from our bones. And then our kidneys see that phosphate and get rid of it because of the PTH being high. Womp, womp. I think we probably just inspired like half of the people listening to us to go take a walk just to yes. get some sunlight, prevent vitamin D deficiency related secondary hyperpara. <laughs> um, so it sounds like primary or secondary hyperpara, including vitamin D deficiency, can lead to increased phosphate excretion in the urine. All right. On to our last bucket, shifts into cells. So a lot of that internal redistribution is going to be seen in cases of refeeding syndrome or alcohol use disorder or eating disorders. When a patient has a carbohydrate intake, again, this is going to be a little bit too complicated of pathophys to explain on air, but in a very simplified sense, when there is carbohydrate intake after a long time, there is increased insulin secretion, glycolysis, and that leads to phosphorylated carbohydrate compounds that makes the phosphate look pretty low. I think the more severe hypophosphatemia that I have seen, excepting, you know, again, maybe that patient with alcohol use disorder are the, these patients with shifts. You know, the patients with uh, DKA, for example, who have massive shifts of, um, of phosphorus into their cells or refeeding syndrome. Um, I think those are the scenarios where I think I've seen the, the worst values. And then the last big one for internal shifts of phosphate is acute respiratory alkalosis. So in respiratory alkalosis, there's low CO2 from hyperventilation. And again, pathophys is a bit complicated, but in a simple sense, when there's low CO2 from hyperventilation, carbon dioxide shifts out of cells. This increases the intracellular pH, which stimulates glycolysis, and again, leads to those pesky phosphorylated carbohydrate compounds, which makes the phosphate low. Gosh darn phosphorylated carbohydrate. <laughs> yeah. What what's like the Scooby Doo thing? Those metalsome. Oh yeah, that's it. Metalsome. Those metalsome phosphorylated carbohydrate oh, compounds. I watched Scooby Doo, but I don't I don't remember that one. That, oh, that's saying I, I would have gotten away for it too, if not for you metalsome kids that like at the oh. end of every episode and they pull it. <laughs> okay. I'm dating myself, I think. Um okay, so to, to pull this back and to summarize. So it sounds like hypophosphatemia, pretty uncommon in healthy people. And so when you see it, it's really worth thinking about why. You should consider GI renal losses. For stool and GI losses, think about aluminum or magnesium-based antacids or anything else that could cause malabsorption or diarrhea. For urinary losses, think about vitamin D, hyperparathyroidism in general. And lastly, we talked about shifts into cells, and these are going to be in situations like refeeding syndrome, DKA, and acute respiratory alkalosis. All right, last but not least, phosphate repletion. But again, let's think back to what is too low and what are we worried about that we want to replete phosphate, you know, other than treating ourselves and making numbers and the EMR look better and less red. (laughs) What do we worry about when the phosphorus is low? I think we worry about things like um, muscle weakness. We worry about things like rhabdomyolysis. Most people are asymptomatic uh, when they have uh, hypophosphatemia, but we do worry in hospitalized patients when the phosphate gets severely reduced that it will affect respiratory 
uh, function, particularly because of the um, diaphragm and might affect the ability to wean from the ventilator or liberate from the ventilator. And so uh, we'll attend to that and want to improve phosphate. You know, phosphate is the P in ATP, so it's going to be important for muscular function. So I really pressed our discussions. Is there a number that makes you worried? Is there a number that you say, hey, I really need to make sure that this person's phosphate is higher the next time that we check it? I would say less than one. I mean, I think all of us will be very anxious if we see it less than one. Yeah, numbers less than one make me worry too. So now on to repletion. You know, if phosphate is so plentiful in our diets and say our patients have their appetite back, what are things we should be pointing them to? I think that diet is such a great way to get phosphate as well. A glass of milk has 15 millimoles per serving. So that's a great way to get uh, phosphate also. Eggs, nut butters. Huh. This also raises the question for me, how much phos is actually in those packets of Nutrifos? If milk has one millimoles per fluid ounce, so a 15 ounce glass of milk has 15 millimoles of phosphate, then how much does our go-to supplements have and what else is in there? Nutrifos packet, which is a common one, has eight millimoles of phosphate and about seven each of sodium and potassium. So it's actually not that much phosphate. If you if the patient has significant hypophosphatemia, one packet only has eight millimoles, you might need a few, a little bit more. Or you know, so several packets divided over the day. Wait. Eight millimoles of phosphate in one Nutrifos? That's about the same as like a standard cup of milk, right? Like, gosh, maybe we should be prescribing milk instead of packets of Nutrifos? Mm. So that's one takeaway for me. I think another real clinical pearl that I'm pulling out of this is, is that when you give phosphate repletion, you're not just giving phosphate because the standard repletion agents, things like Nutrifos, also have potassium and sodium in them and, and sometimes at pretty high quantities. Different hospitals have very different things on formulary for this. And so it's really important that you know which other electrolytes are coming along for the ride. And the reason I bring this up is most of them contain potassium. My hospital uses like this version of Nutrifos that's called Nutrifos Neutral, where the amount of potassium is only one mil equivalent. Um, but I think the listeners should know what they're giving their patient. They're giving them phosphorus, yes, but they're also giving them sodium and they're giving them potassium. And they want to know how much of those things as well, because it's, it can be something more than just an innocent bystander. So with that caution about maybe not so innocent bystanders in our phosphate formulations, let's lean more into the phos and try to figure out how much we should give someone to make someone's serum phosphorus increase. Yeah. Do we have a good idea of how many millimoles of phosphate is needed to get a phos level of like 2.5 to 3.3 or so? So I was kind of given an algorithm as an intern for this. And here, here it is. Ready? So basically, if their phos is a little low, then you give one packet of Nutrifos. And if it's just low, kind of in quotes, then you give two packets of Nutrifos and then you recheck the value the next day, except if the value is dangerously low. <laughs> oh gosh. And that makes me wonder, is one to two packets enough? Is there other things we should be doing? There are algorithms that suggest how much we should give. So as an example, you know, if a patient is asymptomatic and has a 
phosphate of 1.5 to 2, then typical algorithms suggest giving 40 to 80 millimoles of phosphate. That's why I'm saying one packet might be a little low. Um, But again, if you're going to sit down with them and see what they're eating for the day, if they are eating, you're going to be able to get some nice phosphate into their diet. Um, well, also many of the patients, um, in the hospital are maybe taking nutritional supplements, like a protein drink, and those often have a lot of phosphate. So I guess just to say it explicitly, we, we don't have a good rule of thumb for how much someone's serum phosphate is going to go up like we do for potassium. With many other electrolytes, we don't have a good understanding of how much that might change. And maybe that's because patients are so different and have so many different reasons for these uh, deficiencies. But it is handy to at least work with an algorithm. This gives you some comfort, I think, in our messy lives and and, uh, without good evidence. And one of the reasons the amount required to restore the FOSS by a certain amount is, is so variable across different patients is that the volume of distribution of phosphate across patients is also highly variable. Ah, oh, that reminds me of the hemoglobin bump episode that we did after transfusions. And the main point there was also, you know, why don't we always see that rule of thumb one gram per deciliter bump after one unit of transfusion? And it's also one of the big things is the plasma volume can be so different in like, say, an 80-year-old who's thin or short versus someone who's much taller and bigger. The graphic of this actually made it into a lecture that I give somewhat ah, frequently. Yay. So Ben, that's oral phosphate uh, repletion. What about IV phosphate? Someone's not eating, we're really worried about them. What should we know about IV phosphate repletion? So I think it's worth noting that IV phosphate repletion, it comes in like a lot of fluid relative to a lot of these other electrolytes that we're repleting. It's, It's something like 250 cc's per 15 millimoles. And oftentimes you're giving someone 30 or even 45 millimoles. And so you could be giving someone like, half a liter of extra fluid or even more that you weren't really accounting for. And then on top of that, it takes forever to run, like something like six hours. And it's like not really Y citable with a bunch of other things because it's not compatible. And, and so you're potentially tying up a line for a lot longer than you, you appreciated. This is like a problem that I've run into on, on services where you're really aggressively diuresing people. You, you end up in the situation where you are just kind of mindlessly ordering phosphorus repletion because their phos keeps hanging out at like 1.3 or 1.5 or something. And then you're trying to diurese them and you don't understand why you can't get them negative. And then suddenly you walk into the room like I did as an intern and saw them, you know, the nurse hanging this like large bag of fluids. And I was kind of like, what is happening right now? Like we're trying to diurese (laughs) this guy. And they were like, you literally just ordered this this phosphorus replacement. Like, I don't don't know what you want from me. And I felt very (laughs) stupid in that moment. No, no, we're all learning. Thank you for, for helping us all learn too. Thanks, Ben. So one of my big takeaways from this conversation is that the oral repletion agents that we use to replete phosphorus often have a lot of potassium and sodium as well, but that the amounts of those extra electrolytes are variable. And so it's important to check in with your friendly neighborhood pharmacist to see how much sodium or potassium is in your local variant of Nutrifos. I was also surprised that a glass of milk has about as much phosphorus as two packets of Nutrifos, I guess, depending on the size of the glass. It's still really frustrating that there's not an easy way to predict how much someone's phosphorus should go up when we replete, but it is nice that there are algorithms out there to help guide us, and we will link to some of those. Yes, and that is a wrap for our episode. If you want to hear more from the interviews, check out our YouTube channel. We have a bunch of behind-the-scenes snippets from the original interviews that you can go check out. If you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges you've had, tweet us or X us. Uh, leave a comment on our website page, on Instagram, or on Facebook. Thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Jeff William, Dr. Larissa Kruger-Gomes, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson, 
and Dr. Fabricio Canipa Escaro. Thank you to Dr. Spatia for the audio editing, Dr. Sam Woodworth for the accompanying graphic. As always, we love hearing feedback. Email us at hello at coreanpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. There's been a lot of bug... Start over. There's been a lot of bugs. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of bugs. Leads to those damn phosphorylated carbohydrate compounds. I don't know if I'm allowed to say damn on air. Uh, <laughs> leads to those... Uh, what's a what's a more benign word? Pesky. Uh, can you say dang it? You can say dang. I don't know if that's a word. Okay, so start over. Uh, pesky, good old. Yes, pesky is good. Know. Thank you, thank you, thank you. See, this is why this is why I need help on air. <laughs>